0: Hey everyone, it's Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Can of Boomers podcast. This week we have Dr. Peter Grinspoon, a primary care physician at an inner city clinic in Boston and he's also on staff at Massachusetts General Hospital. Peter is the author of Pre-Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction, a really uh, unflinching and often funny, although you wouldn't think it's a funny topic, but a, a witty take on the ordeal of becoming addicted to opioids as a doctor and the many obstacles in your way to recovery but Peter has conquered that and he's been clean for 10 years so we talk about book about how cannabis can actually help address some of the problems around the opioid crisis in this country and you'll also learn what it's like to have your dad getting high with the famous astrophysicist downstairs all good stuff enjoy the show and uh, let us know what you think thank you this is Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers podcast. CBD, microdosing, and all things related to medical cannabis for baby boomers. From San Diego, here's your host, Thomas J. I did read your book. It was uh, really good, um, really witty in the way that you took lemons and, and made some lemonade, I guess. Um, you were a philosophy major, and, and it kind of shows the way you think about things.
1: Well, you know, you feel laugh and you can cry, and I guess I did a lot of both in the book. It was pretty difficult, but I feel like you learn a lot when you go through recovery. Those of us who are, luckily, who are lucky enough to um, get through to the other side of addiction... And you learn a lot, and it really changes how you view the world.
0: Especially given your medical school training and then your work as an MD and the sort of privileged access you had to some of the the drugs and, and then your understanding of all, every, every aspect, the biochemistry, the, the practical everyday considerations, even the emotional impact and, and almost spiritual impact of once you go into recovery. But you have a view of that stuff that, that I think is a lot more Nuanced and considered than than a lot of us do.
1: Yeah, I do feel like I approach the opiate issue from a sort of unique perspective because I you know, am in recovery from addict, opiate addiction, and I've also treated a lot of patients who are in opiate um, who are, who have been addicted to opiates, and also I've treated a lot of physicians who are addicted, not just to opiates, but addicted in general. Uh, physicians have a higher rate of addiction than the general population because of their stress and their access. That's why I called my memoir, Free Refills. We essentially have unlimited access to prescription medications. And if you um, mix together access to medications, which you know, are a shortcut to dealing with emotional problems and stress, with the epidemic we're having of physician burnout, it's a perfect storm for addiction. So that's why the rates of addiction in the general population are thought to be about 9% and among physicians, it's thought to be about 10 to 15%. But you don't hear that much about it because it's a taboo subject, uh, which is part of why I wrote my memoir to make the point that doctors are normal people. They can get addicted, they can recover, and it's a problem that they need help with. Unfortunately, when you're a doctor, and I think this is probably true for nurse, pilot, and people in other safety related professions. If you are to ask for help, and if you are struggling, the response is punitive. You can get your license taken away. Consequently, nobody asks for help. So instead of getting help early when this thing, your addiction or your depression or whatever you're struggling with is more treatable, you end up struggling on your own and then It ends up being a disaster. You hear about the surgeon who's drunk in the OR. He gets his license, he or she gets their license revoked. You know, it's the front page of the newspaper and it's a huge fiasco. So part of what I'm interested in is making the response less punitive so that people can feel comfortable asking for help and getting help earlier, which will be safer for patients, safer for the doctors, and just a much better way to go about handling the reality of addiction and depression and mental health issues in caregivers, nurses, doctors, and other safety professionals.
0: So it, it is an occupational hazard, and you were able to navigate it. It certainly wasn't easy. Um, in the book you detail, it took years for you to earn back the trust and to actually do the work. I mean, it's not easy work, right? Um, all of us have brains that are susceptible to, to these uh, substances, and nobody's immune to that.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, yeah, It was really hard work. Um, I gave one book talk, and a woman said you know, I took Percocet after delivering, after my C-section and I didn't feel euphoric and I didn't wanna take more Percocet. And, you know, my reality was that the first time I took Percocet, I wanted to keep taking it over and over again. I was so euphoric, I spent the next 10 years of my life trying to recreate that high. And then interestingly, you know, in a physician support group meeting, a different one, some someone said when I had my first drink of alcohol, I couldn't stop drinking. That was it. It made me so euphoric. I kept drinking and drinking and drinking. And I personally don't like alcohol at all. It just makes me sleepy. It doesn't make me euphoric. I I don't even see the appeal. So it seems to me that different drugs have a different affinity for different people's brains. You know, that one woman didn't have an affinity for Percocet. I had a huge affinity for Vicodin, which is very close to Percocet. This other guy had a huge affinity for alcohol, which I don't have. You know a certain percentage of our population are alcoholics when they drink alcohol they get euphoric and can't stop drinking so i think that drugs can hijack your brain if you're susceptible to it part of its environmental part of its genetic and it's sort of really hard to predict who's going to get in trouble it's like um you know the lottery but a very negative lottery but it's sort of scary because you know as a doctor we prescribe opiates for people when They have a lot of pain, and a certain percentage of people do get addicted.
0: You, again, are intimately uh, associated with the inside of the medical profession, and you've been through this. What do you see as our best way forward? I mean, the epidemic that we're in, I don't know if it's even peaked yet. What do you think can be done to to protect us from some of the damage that occurs when people get hooked on, on some of these drugs?
1: Well, ideally, we're transitioning people from street drugs to Suboxone or Methadone, the medications that are called medication-assisted treatment, which are much safer, The prescribed. Suboxone is prescribed in the doctor's office and Methadone is an older drug that you get in the Methadone clinic. And they have been shown to reduce the risk of overdose and reduce cravings. And um, we uh, view it as sort of like giving insulin to a diabetic. They are opiates, but they're very difficult to overdose on. And on these medications, people can often go back to normal lifestyles. So we are very eager in getting people who are addicted and who are taking street drugs onto these medications because a lot of people taking street drugs these days is Mm -hmm. very dangerous because of the street heroin and even the pills on the street that you get that look like Percocet or Vicodin can be contaminated with fentanyl, and, which is a very strong uh, opiate that is often imported from China and people are overdosing left and right and dying from these overdoses. So we're trying to get people who are on street drugs onto safer opiates, which we prescribed in the office. We're trying to get Narcan or Naloxone in the hands of everyone, which is the drug that reverses overdoses so that if someone does overdose, they can it's a nasal spray, they can reverse it right away um, because when you overdose on opiates, you stop breathing. This can get you breathing again um, on the way to the hospital or while you're waiting for 911. We um, are very much in favor of safe injection sites where people are gonna, who are addicted are going to inject regardless of whether or not, you know... Um, and they have a safe place to do it. You know, so instead of having people inject in the public bathroom of McDonald's, why not have a safe place for them to inject? But there's medical monitoring. Just like safe needles were very controversial 20 or 30 years ago, um, moralistic people thought, we don't want to encourage drug use. Let's not give people clean needles. Um, and then once they started distributing clean needles, the rates of HIV started dropping. It's the same thing with safe injection sites. There will be less overdoses, and you have a chance to get people into treatment. But this is controversial, and we have a ways to go before people, a lot of uh, certain segments of our society, accept this. Um, so there are a lot of things we're trying to do to get to the end of the opiate crisis. I personally think that instead, of, um, there's been a well, there's been a lot of pressure on doctors to prescribe fewer opiates. And it's true that if we prescribe fewer opiates, there will be less people on opiates in the future and less opiates floating around for people to kind of take out of someone else's medicine closet and take and get addicted to, which is a major pathway for people getting addicted who are currently addicted. But at the same time, this draconian pressure not to prescribe is actually harming a lot of chronic pain patients who are currently on Very high doses of opiates. Whether they should or shouldn't have been started, now they are on these high doses and it's very awful that a lot of them are on these high doses and are having a hard time finding doctors to prescribe them. A lot of them are having to go cold turkey or being forced to taper. So I don't believe we should cut people off that are already on high doses of opiates, but I do think we should offer them the opportunity to taper or to use alternative medicines And I think we should be very judicious about starting new patients on high-dose opiates because they really aren't great medications for chronic pain. In my office, I'm using more um, medical cannabis for new chronic pain patients and trying really hard not to start new patients on high-dose opiates so that we don't have this problem in the future. If we don't get people on high-dose opiates now, There will be fewer opiates in medicine closets for other people to take or for patients to get addicted to, which is part of how the current opiate epidemic got started. Some people need opiates because they're strong and effective for some conditions, but they're really not that effective for most chronic pain. I think medical cannabis is a safer choice. But with pain, beggars can't be choosers, and we just don't have a lot of great options. Opiates can cause overdoses, and people can get addicted. Um, medical cannabis doesn't work for everybody, and there's some stigma against it, which we're working very hard um, to fight against because cannabis is much safer than opiates and is probably safer than the non-steroidals like Advil, Naperson, Aleve, medications like that. Um, the medications, the non-steroidals that I just mentioned can cause ulcers, and kidney damage and can cause heart attacks as well. So you can't use those year after year. And a lot of people don't find Tylenol to be particularly effective. So there just aren't a lot of great options for pain control. But the key is to not get more people on higher-dose opiates unless they absolutely need it as a final component so that there will be fewer people on higher-dose opiates and fewer opiates floating around. The final point I'd make is that we've fought this war on drugs for the last 50 years or so, which has been an utter disaster. You know, we go after one source of drugs coming into the country or produced in the country, and another pops up right away. It's profitable um, to sell and, you know, produce drugs. It's We need to end the war on drugs and focus on treatment. We treat people with opiate addiction. That's how we're gonna end the epidemic, not by chasing after dealers. Um, Though it would be nice if we could stop all of the cheap and difficult to detect and lethal fentanyl coming from China that would be a big help. But generally speaking, treatment is much more important than this crazy militaristic criminal justice approach to the war on drugs. From
0: within your profession, is is this a radical sort of um, idea? How far out there are you? Are there other doctors who are with you in uh, this kind of thinking?
1: Well, I would say that most of what I just said, most doctors w- would agree with. Uh, the safe injection sites um, where people can use um, opiates in a safe room uh, as opposed to like in a public bathroom. I'm not sure all doctors are um, in agreement with that because some feel like um, the rest of the population, like that's encouraging drug use. But I think many doctors would be in support of that. I think almost all doctors are in favor of medication-assisted treatment like Suboxone and Methadone, though I'm sure there's a minority of doctors that hold on to the stigma of... Oh, you're just replacing one opiate with another, which is a ridiculous argument because we're replacing it with a legal, safe opiate that doesn't cause overdoses or crime, and which reduces um, the overdose rate by 50 percent. But there are some that would disagree with it, but most would agree with it. Most would agree with not putting, with putting as few patient, new patients on high dose opiates as possible. Um, doctors have been very slow to accept medical marijuana. They are slowly catching on, but it's very interesting that doctors are so far behind the general population in understanding the medical benefits. Part of it is because research has been prohibited in this country because it's been classified under the Controlled Substance Act as a Schedule One substance. So it's been virtually impossible to do research on the benefits of medical cannabis. and partially because there's this whole industry in this country, a uh, 1000000000 dollars industry, improving, I call it the cannabis is evil industry, and just studying the harm. So there's just a steady drumbeat of uh, these studies that purport to show how harmful cannabis is. Uh, more money has been spent trying to show how harmful cannabis is than any other substance on Earth. And, you know, um, some of the studies uh, show... Um, that there's you know circumstances to be cautious about adolescents shouldn't smoke um pregnant women shouldn't smoke obviously people shouldn't smoke before driving but overall it's clearly safer than opiates clearly safer than alcohol clearly safer than tobacco um i think that uh the doctors have to actually think for themselves on this issue and separate themselves from a lot of the misinformation and hysteria that they've been bombarded with on this issue for their whole education. I mean, the medical textbooks that I read in medical school almost could have been taken verbatim from the movie reefer madness. They were so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So we're a lot of us are working on developing like a counter narrative with like actual fact-based reality-based education about medical cannabis for the medical community so that they actually can have educated, um, you know, uh, helpful answers when patients wanna talk to them about it. Um, Because if the doctors don't know anything about it, or if they just have a snooty, dismissive attitude towards it, the patients are just gonna go to other sources for their information, which are probably gonna be very unreliable. So I think it's absolutely critical that the medical profession educate themselves about medical cannabis immediately, because it's legal now in 30 states and the District of Columbia, and millions of patients are on it. And A, the patients have to feel comfortable telling their doctors they're on it. B, the doctors have to know enough about it to know does it interact with their other medications? Is it complementing their other medications? What are the side effects? And C, the doctors can be really useful, use it as a tool, as a very safe way to treat pain and other conditions, like post traumatic stress disorder, for example. Um, so I think it's urgent that the physicians educate themselves and catch up. But to go back to your question, would the other doctors agree with me? Um, the doctors, many doctors agree. Many doctors are very much against it. In my experience, especially addiction doctors um, just have this like mental block against it. And um, pain doctors, some of them are very against it. I think part of that's because it interferes you know, with their livelihood because they like to do injections. Um. Uh, but um, I think that uh, generally speaking the medical profession is slowly but surely heading in the right direction and understanding that it is a very safe way to treat pain
0: right we can look forward to medical students learning about it in medical schools at some point I mean from what I've heard most doctors have no familiarity with the
1: fact that we have an endocannabinoid system it's only taught in something like 15% of medical schools they, I mean I'm sure that's increasing but they don't even teach it in all medical schools. It's a major, huge, comprehensive neurotransmitter system in the body and the brain that controls or is involved with virtually every function in our body, and it's hardly taught. In the medical schools is totally crazy
0: I guess that won't change overnight But as you say As we kind of develop an, A counter-narrative And do the PR war About getting this word out We'll go from 15% of, of medical students Hearing about it To 45, 50 And, and eventually it'll become a, a prevalent piece of knowledge
1: It's interesting too Because if you look at support among For cannabis legalization medically Which is now at about 95% But if you looked at it earlier It was always higher the younger the population is and the same is true for recreational marijuana it's higher in younger groups so i think that medical students being younger are going to be like demanding information about this and i think the curriculums are going to change sooner rather than later because medical students are hungry for knowledge and they're going to be they're growing up in this generation so they're not they're not tainted by all the brainwashing that our generation had so i think that they're going to be a lot more open minded and uh, ready to receive um, more accurate ep- and sort of fact-based information about medical cannabis. So I think it's going to
0: change pretty quickly. I hope it does accelerate. From a sort of pragmatic perspective, as a doctor, how do you handle the dosing of cannabis? There's vaping, there's edibles, flour, and we know that different people, we may react differently to different strains. It isn't a an identical experience or, or dose. So h- how do you begin to properly dose when you're prescribing?
1: That's one thing that is difficult. And it's also one thing that I think does legitimately uh, intimidate doctors from certifying patients, is that we don't give people a specific dose and we don't have control over what they do. When I certify someone for medical marijuana, they are allowed to go into the store and buy whatever they want. It's not like I give them a dose of, um, you know, omeprazole for their stomach acid that's 20 milligrams once a day. So I can only make recommendations, but the patient can do whatever they want. And I think that that um, is uh, very challenging for physicians, It's challenging for me, because I just make recommendations and then they can go in and the bud tender, the person who works at the dispensary, who may or may not know what he or she is talking about can give them totally different advice so that lack of control is a legitimate problem that I think physicians face in certifying patients but I um, generally talk to patients about starting low and going slow start with like the lowest dose possible worst case scenario nothing will happen and you can try more the next day more the next day to slowly get up to a therapeutic effect without having any um, untoward side effects. I um, counsel them to try strains that are higher in CBD and lower in THC, because they tend to be less anxiety provoking and get you less stoned, which most people don't want um, if they're strictly pursuing it for medical purposes. Um, I encourage people to vape and not to smoke Um, if they can afford the vaporizer because that's obviously healthier. I give patients um, a very stern warning about edibles because edibles can be way too strong and they can be mislabeled and people can have a really awful experience if they take an edible that's too strong and it lasts forever. It could just be too high for 12 hours. Uh, So I say, if you're going to do an edible, just take like an eighth of it and see what happens. And the next day you could try more. Um, I... Very much encourage people to keep journals of the different strains so that they can know what helps them. If someone's using it for fibromyalgia and they find that a particular strain doesn't help, they write that down. If they find that a different strain does help, they should write that down so that then they can eventually find what strain works best for their particular problem. And then, just in terms of the dosing, I start with microdosing, very small, like maybe two and a half milligrams, really small, because you don't want side effects. And, of course, you warn people to store it safely so no one, no teenagers, no one else can find it. Um, and certainly not to use it before driving or going to work because it is psychoactive. Unless, of course, they're just using CBD. If it's someone who's very nervous about using um, medical marijuana, I'll often start them on pure cbd and then you don't have to worry nearly as much about the side
0: effects it sounds to me like what you're describing it, it, you're asking the patient to be a lot more self-aware typically than maybe the previous era where you, you would you could say okay take this omeprazole and that should solve your acid reflux problem but now it's you're in a, a little more of a partnership with the patient and asking them to monitor and record and really kind of pay attention and and take some responsibility on their own.
1: No, that's absolutely true. Though, you know, as a primary care doctor, that's basically what I do anyways. But you're right. The partnership um, is sort of um, extends out a little bit further from what I do. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the partnership for diabetes is we work together on the patient exercising, losing weight, keeping track of their sugars, and taking – 10, you know, 500 milligrams of metformin. And here the partnership extends to them figuring out the analogy would be all the same things, except them figuring out whether they need metformin or insulin or another medication and them figuring out the exact dose. So you're absolutely right. It's still the same partnership, but the patient has to take initiative and sort of figure out exactly what flavor of the medicine to take and what dose and then do that sort of autonomously, so you're right. it is more um it is more um of i don't want to say burden it's more it takes a lot more initiative on the patient's part. you're right it's sort of less paternalistic and more more initiative on the patient's part to really dig in and see what works and see what doesn't work.
0: Do you see that as a positive? Oftentimes, the doctor-patient relationship is uh, the, the patient comes in and gets a prescription and doesn't really think that they have much responsibility. Maybe this changes that paradigm a little bit.
1: First of all, I think, as I said before, that might be part of why some doctors are having a little trouble with this, because it is a real paradigm shift. And we are used to saying you have high blood pressure, here's 25 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide, as opposed to saying you have high blood pressure, here's a certification, go find a high blood pressure medication that you don't have side effects for. So I could see that is a real change in paradigm for doctors. So it is more, more difficult. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I know that I'm supposed to say it's a good thing and it's great that patients are involved and that they're more autonomous and it gives them more control. <laughs> Um, In reality, I would say it's a good thing for most patients and for some patients, it's not a good thing. Um, It depends on the patient. Some people, as a primary care doctor for 25 years, I can think it's fair to say that some people are phenomenal at taking initiative and doing things for themselves and getting things done and they are super motivated at caring for themselves and other people aren't. So I think that um, some people would be better able to navigate the responsibility um, of doing all this and others uh, would have trouble with it. And others, other patients do a lot better when um, the doctor says, do this, this, and this, they can do that. And if the doctor um, doesn't provide very explicit instructions, they're lost. So, I would say it it depends a lot on the patient, but overall, I think it's great the more patients have autonomy.
0: The conditions for which you may prescribe cannabis, um, you know, we know it's anti inflammatory, CBD can be, um, it might be useful for anxiety, for PTSD. Certainly, uh, we know it works as an anti epileptic. There are entrenched interests for all these things that will need to be displaced. I mean, cannabis is not a panacea, it's not going to solve every medical problem, but it might clear out some things from people's medicine cabinets, right?
1: No, absolutely. Um, There's a study I think out of Colorado when they legalized it recreationally. Pharmaceuticals across the board, sales for pharmaceuticals across the board went down. You know, and I think that, you know, people need less Viagra because it helps with sex. People need less Ambien because it helps sleep. People need less Valium because it helps with anxiety. I can totally see why that would be the case. And, you know, Big Pharma was one of the huge funders of the anti-marijuana initiatives across the country. Uh, whenever a, um initiative comes up for medical or recreational marijuana, the, one of the biggest funders is always Big Pharma because they don't want the competition, exactly what you're saying. So they um, give a lot of money to come up to these preposterous ads. You know, you take one puff of marijuana and your legs fall off. Mm-hmm. So I, it just is very threatening to the, um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, who are also at the same time very interested in pursuing um, different cannabinoids to um, to research, develop, and market. They just approved a version of CBD, which is the first time the U.S. government has approved uh, cannabis-based medicine, I believe, um, a couple weeks ago. So you know, this is kind of a sort of a double-edged sword um, in terms of the pharmaceutical industry—they're very much opposed to cannabis because it's displacing a lot of their products. But they are interested in cannabinoids.
0: If we shift gears back to the book for for the next question, um, there was a permissiveness in the 70s that uh, maybe went away in the in the 80s and 90s. Uh, a certain tenor to the times might have made your whole experience unique in that you learned about all the the drugs and you had a certain background and a certain fearlessness in experimenting with them
1: i just especially with respect to cannabis you know first of all i i lost a brother to leukemia when i was eight and cannabis was the only thing that allowed him to eat when he was getting chemotherapy they didn't have a lot of the drugs that they have now to help people so i saw firsthand that cannabis does help people medically So it never was, like, an entirely bad thing. It was something that was associated with medical value that I saw in my family when I was, like, a little kid. Mm -hmm. Second of all, I saw really smart, educated people using it and having these, like, brilliant conversations. Like Carl Sagan was a good friend of my dad, the astronomer, and he'd be smoking and having these, like, absolutely brilliant, like, mind numbingly brilliant conversations that were completely inspiring about like the cosmos and the universe and human evolution and life in other planets or other parts of the universe and so like the most amazing conversations that when smoking so I sort of saw that cannabis can have an upside as well as a downside and then you know reading my dad's book Marijuana Reconsidered uh, you know my dad's Dr. Lester Grinsk, when he was considered to be the grandfather of medical marijuana because he published that book in 1971 and it was reviewed on the front page of the new york times book review and it really questioned a lot of the current thinking of marijuana and talked a lot about the cultural history and all the artists and musicians and great thinkers that have used it um sort of as a way to sort of enhance their creativity and their thinking um so you know i I sort of had a counter narrative uh to the whole um uh, message that we were getting in the nineteen seventies that cannabis is evil, cannabis is bad, cannabis is awful. So I sort of saw both sides of it. Um, you know, now in retrospect one side the yes say no part of it was, you know, vastly exaggerated, but I saw both sides, and I think that that gave me a a different perspective than like a lot of the other kids.
0: Your dad was sort of a voice in the wilderness back then. There there weren't many people who were talking about the medicinal value. Uh, And as you say, you know, from the White House on down, it was just say no. So uh, that's uh, interesting that you were in the household where this guy was making that case, and it sure wasn't a popular case at the time.
1: It was popular among a lot of people and unpopular. Among a lot of other people, <laughs> so, <laughs> it was sort of uh, controversial. I think is the word. I wouldn't say unpopular. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Like it would. The book did. The book was like, a lot of praised by a lot of people who were enlightened on the issue and criticized by the Richard Nixon drug war people. So. I just think it was sort of controversial.
0: How's your dad taking it now? I mean, the, the last few years, it, it has, again, it's accelerated, you know, to the point where we're talking about it being taught in medical schools. Did you ever think that we'd reach this point? I mean, it, it took a while, but we're finally kind of on the cusp of, of legitimacy.
1: Well, he just turned 90. Wow. And he's um, pretty old, but he, um, you know, he'll be fighting for medical cannabis until his last breath mm. and he's just you know so excited that this is happening it really feels like the tide is turning um you know there's still obstacles you have your you know jeff sessions of the world but um generally speaking you know when 94 95 of the american population is in favor of medical cannabis and oklahoma's voting to legalize medical cannabis um it just really seems like um it's going to be very hard to turn back the clock on this one and he just couldn't be happier
0: that's great. The moment is is almost here. And uh, there's been such a groundswell and people like you are at the forefront of it. And we're no longer talking about outliers. We're, there, there's a whole movement and, and as you say, a counter narrative that's happening. I want to mention that I see on Twitter and you got a great Twitter game and you're helping tell the story there. There's also a political dimension to this. I mean, we do talk about you know Nixon and Jeff Sessions. And I talked to, in my previous podcast, a guy who's working with the Veterans Cannabis Coalition, and, and he's very accustomed counting votes. And it, it's an odd time, though. I mean, we don't know what the guy in the White House is going to do. He, he may, just to piss off the attorney general, he could make some arbi- <laughs> arbitrary decision. He doesn't uh- know what he's going to
1: do. <laughs>
0: how do you suggest that those of us Boomers who are interested in supporting the cause, how do we get involved? How do we become advocates? How do we help support the counter narrative?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of groups that are active, you know, normal, has local chapters. Um, There are a lot of um, groups that are working to fight the drug war, like the Drug Policy Alliance. Um, There are a lot of groups that are interested in criminal justice reform, because a big part of the marijuana legalization movement also is about criminal justice reform because we've still got hundreds of thousands of people rotting away in jail for these ridiculous marijuana offenses. So people can get involved in criminal justice reform. And I think education is a very, very big part of it. I mean, people can educate themselves and really spread the word. I mean, I think, you know, the pen is muddier than the sword. I think the more people can read, learn, and be educated about this, the more um, I think the education spreads and that, um, that there will be more credibility um, for the issue. I mean, we want to take it out of the status of, like, It being perceived as like a folk cure and more into the status of it being like sort of mainstream uh, medical treatment. And I think education is a very big part of it. I think people should uh, be open and honest about it with their doctors. And I think people should, you know, expect their doctors to know about it and learn about it so I think people should really bring it up with their doctors and talk to their doctors about it. And
0: and just have more conversations I mean in a way you still need to be judicious because people do face drug tests at work and can you safely you know talk about cannabis usage and that's something that uh, everybody has to decide but um, I think we're getting closer to the day where it's it's a safe conversation and certainly rather than sitting on the sidelines uh, I think people need to think about how to advance this counter narrative again. Absolutely I totally I, I want to mention your book is available at Amazon.com it's published by Hatchet. Do we see it in bookstores too?
1: Well it's been out for, for a little while so I don't think it's in bookstores as much but you can certainly find free refills in on Amazon and um, it is uh, you know I think it's will be entertaining to anybody who's interested in the cannabis movement because it talks a lot about my dad and me and growing up in that hub household which is entertaining and it also talks a lot about opiate addiction Um, and um, yeah it's easy to find on Amazon.
0: Do you have any other writing projects lined up because it's you're good
1: at this? Oh well thank you well I do write blogs for Harvard Health Publications. I'm writing one on CBD. I just wrote one on physician burnout. Um, I write a bunch of them on opiates and I am working on a novel but that is um a lot harder than anything I've done before. <laughs> so, that's
0: great. I, you I'm know,
1: finding that writing fiction is really difficult.
0: I found that out myself. We'll definitely link to your blog in the show notes. Well,
1: that's great. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the great podcast.
0: Thank you so much for your. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Weed, the Cannaboomers Podcast with Thomas J. For more on medicinal cannabis for baby boomers, visit us at Canaboomers.com.